If you'll turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 22, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5, and it is certainly my prayer that uh, these verses will minister to you in our short time together as they ministered to me during the longer time that I had to engage them in my study this, this week. I'll, I'll read this in just a second, but just to remind you that I, when I read a passage, I often will start with the words, hear now the word of God, hear now the word of God. Then I'll read it, and then I'll say something like, thus far the reading of God's word. And I do that because, because we believe that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, are the sole, infallible, and inerrant word of God. And so when we're reading those words, those are the word of God. And then when I look up and start talking, I'm going to yeah, it's my opinion on what those words actually mean. And we all have a responsibility to examine those things, and you have a responsibility if you feel I'm off base to kind of, you know, during our question and answer time or, or during the course of the week, go, you know, Pastor Paul, I think you got that wrong. And then we can have a discussion, and we are mutually edified by such a thing. But I think it's very important for us to always recognize that that's the Word of God, and once we look up, we're wrestling through it. Like we're struggling through, what does this mean? What does this tell us about God? And what does this tell me in terms of God's claim in my life? How am I to respond to these things? So Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, hear now the word of God. And he showed me a pure river of water, of life clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would come to know and understand such illustrious and glorious words what they tell us of you, how they are designed to both challenge and encourage us. I pray that we would all be good learners and we would absorb in our hearts and our minds that which you would have us know, walk away from an event like this wiser than we came in. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, there is a uh, temptation to relegate a passage like this so entirely to the future that we miss what it currently means, excuse me, what it currently means to us right now, today. I don't think when we read about heaven that it's designed for us to kind of just pine away from he- for heaven. I think we're told about these things that they, it might have a current impact on what goes on this very moment. Now, don't get me wrong, to be sure, there is a full consummation of heaven expressed in these words. 
I mean, it, there is something that we know that we are going to enjoy forever, this new and heavenly Jerusalem. But we should not lose sight of the truth that this very moment as we sit here, we are currently citizens of what is being expressed. The author of Hebrews says it this way, and notice he's talking about it's the past tense. But you have come, right? So you're already there. You have come where? To Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. You have come to them. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. My point here is he's kind of going, look at you guys don't realize where you are when you've come together, especially as a church. Who are you? What is this event? Paul expresses it this way in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 6. So kind of perplexing, and raised us up. In a certain sense, we're resurrected and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's our current condition, seated with Christ. All this to say that even though this passage speaks of a glorious, eternal future, of true life, I don't want to diminish that. I hope we're all looking forward, you know, to heaven. It also tells us a little bit about who we currently are and how we should currently live. The, re- the recipients of this letter were not giving this letter just to sit there and enjoy what might happen. Blessed are those who hear we, this benediction in the very beginning of Revelation, who hear and who keep the words written. So in some sense, we're going, all right, what's my call to action here? Or what, are, what is God trying to inculcate in my thoughts, in my mind, in order to either challenge me or comfort me or rebuke me? What's going on in terms of how I would respond right now? Knowing who our true master is, knowing what our true citizenship is. You know, for years, uh, we worked at an orphanage in Mexico, And I remember we would load our vans up with food and clothes and toys and people. And we would load this van up, get up early in the morning, and drive to this poverty-stricken community of small children. And I recall one of our volunteers pondering what these orphans must have thought. You know, where... Where does a van like this come from with all of its provision, with all of its resources? You know, born in a, what amounts to be a third world country, poverty stricken your entire life, and all of a sudden this van shows up, and they open the doors, and there's toys and hot dogs and potato chips and 
ice cream and all this stuff. And I remember she kind of asked, like, what do you think they must think about where this van came from? They, part of, you know, part of them must have been thinking, I don't know where that van came from, but I want to go there. I want to be at the place this van came from. Now, the secondary cause of the riches in that van was, just to be honest, a prosperous nation. We, we live in a nation where we could fill a van up. That's the secondary cause. But the primary cause of the riches, the primary cause of the van, the primary cause of the people in the van was Christ. It was a, it was a Christian effort. And it was this that we hoped they would see and desire. Like there, there was, you know, there was this desire to feed people. I mean, don't get me wrong. But there's a greater desire. There's a spiritual food that we were hoping that they, that they would recognize in these efforts not so much our love, but the love of Christ. That they would see that God was doing something for them that would yield a response, or as the Apostle Paul expresses it, that the goodness of God would lead them to repentance. That they would see that there is a good God who cares about their food, about their clothing, about their enjoyment, about their life. And that knowledge would lead them to seek after that God. So, understand my analogy here. When we examine a passage like this, with an exuberant anticipation of the glory which is before us, we should also view it intently. Or as James instructs us how we are to read our Bibles, to be a doer of the work. And this one will be blessed in what he does. See, you see, what I'm saying here is that we were citizens of America And then we load a van up and bring it to a country that of disadvantaged people. But you are all citizens of this eternal heavenly kingdom. And daily, you're bringing the van of your own life into this world. And people should be able to be nourished as a result of you. People should look at you and go, where do they come from? What wonderful thing has happened to them? that they would do such things. And he showed me, verse 1 says, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We recently had a leak at our house and our plumbing, and the plumbers had to turn the water off for a couple of hours. And it's times like that that I realized that we essentially live in a desert. I mean, Southern California is a desert that we figured out how to get water to. But historically, and even internationally, water is not something people always take for granted. When you, when you read your Bibles, water speaks of life. Water is life. Now, the image given here in verse 1 is of a life-giving river, all right? There's this river 
full of life. I think one of the most powerful images of this life-giving river is found in Ezekiel. Where we're taught of water. Get this image. You have this temple and water is coming out of the temple. This picture we get in Ezekiel. And it starts off, we read, as a trickle. And then we read that it becomes ankle deep. And then it becomes knee deep. You see there's this kind of, this image we see oftentimes in the Bible, right? Like the kingdom of God starting, you know, small and getting big. You know, like leaven permeating the loaf and so forth. We see it here as well. So you've got this temple. And let me just say, unless, in, in, in case we don't understand, the temple had as its chief design to teach us of Jesus. Right? We, that, that's why the temple, by the way, was destroyed, because it became a distraction from Jesus rather than an instruction about Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? What was he talking about? Was he talking about one of those massive quick productions of another temple? No, John says that he was speaking of his own body. So when you read about the temple, and you read about the light in the temple, and you read about the law in the temple, and you read about the door in the temple, and you read about all these things, they're all instructions about Christ. So we have this temple in Ezekiel, and from the temple, you have this little trickle of water, then it becomes ankle deep, then it becomes knee deep, and then we read that it becomes an impassable deluge. I mean, it gets so deep... There is no getting through it. Now, we should not view that river coming out of the temple as some type of destructive deluge. The only thing that it's destroying is evil. So it's a flood that is good, not a flood that is bad. It's a river of vitalization, true vitalization, a true life-giving river. And Ezekiel describes its effect. He kind of goes, let me tell you what's going to happen when this river keeps going. We read in Ezekiel 47, 8 and 9, and he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, Every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea shall become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. When my water was turned off, it didn't help that I lived by the ocean. (laughs) A lot of people die in life rafts. Surrounded by water. They die of thirst. Because there's this deception that this water will nourish me. There's a deception that, no, 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 I've got plenty of provision I'm taken care of. Until you drink it and you realize, this, this water does not actually quench. Friends, all that glitters is not gold. Do we have the wisdom to be able to see that which is real water and that which is fake water? Or water that will nourish and give life or water that will, in fact, end in our demise. What is this river, by the way? I mean, I'm telling you kind of what it, it, 
we see in that passage what it produces everywhere it goes. I mean, the, the, the salt water becomes fresh water. That which is dead becomes living. You know, when Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men, it talks about fish here. It, these fish who were destined for destruction now become alive. So we kind of get an idea of what it does, but what is it? What is this river, and what is our interaction with it? Like, How are you part of this? Now, in this passage that we're reading, we learn that the river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So that's where it goes. But you know what? Other places in the Bible, we see the river flowing from someplace else. We read in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So are rivers of living water flowing out of your heart? He's, you know, the, the interesting way he says it goes, come, and, come to me and drink. So you go into him and drinking, and then he's saying, and then out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. There seems to be kind of that we're not just this vessel where it all stops with us. There's an inlet and an outlet of you and me. The water's coming in and it's going out. It's not just staying here and becoming stagnant. That van that I spoke of earlier would be of little use to the orphans if it remained empty and in the garage. Can you imagine? Hey, we got a, we're, we, we're, we've, we've eaten, we've had our hot dogs and chips, we've played with the toys, right? So we're good. No. It needed to be filled by those who had come to Christ. It needed to be filled by those who had had their own spiritual thirst satisfied. You're, you're, you're no good to the advancement of the kingdom of God if you yourself are still in darkness. By believing in Christ, by feeding on him by, by drinking those waters, we become of great utility to the advancement of the kingdom of God. You know, in commercial jets, <clears throat> you've seen this, it seems very counterintuitive to me, and maybe it's because I'm so afraid of flying, I don't think clearly while I'm flying, but when they say, look at if the cabin loses pressure, which I don't want to hear that, the cabin loses pressure, the oxygen masks will come down. And if you're flying with small children, what do they tell you to do? Put it on yourself first. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. But they understand that if I've passed out, I'm of little value to my child. Right? They're like, make sure that you're healthy. But, but then if I just help myself and my child's there kind of going, I'm like, you know what, I just was about me. I'm good. You're kind of expensive anyway. No. <laughs> My kids are in the room like, Dad. But it's then that I now turn and help them. 
See, our, our interaction with this river is one of drinking and pouring. We drink and we pour. Now, a lot can be said in terms of this type of active vessel, where we're a vessel. And enough for now for us to understand this. That the means by which I drink or I eat or I feed, first and foremost, is by believing in the one who came to set me free from sin and death. First and foremost, to believe. And then that, that faith is strengthened and nourished by things like Scripture, the reading of Scripture, the study of the Word of God, prayer, fellowship, worship. But here's something that's not always on the list that I think is really critical, and that is once we've done all that, once we're like going, yeah, I've been filled, we need to refuse to hoard. It's, it's, it's not, it's just not, it doesn't stop with you. Right? You now need to turn and you need to feed others. And when I say that, I mean spiritually feed others. The provision van now needs to make the trip to the hungry souls. And I, I didn't put this in my notes, but uh, this morning as I was looking at it, it came to dawn on me that, because I, I don't want this to sound selfish. For any of us. But oftentimes, people who are willing to serve are the ones who, in their service, become more edified than the ones they're serving. I remember for years I ran a high school camp, Catalina Island, and it was a big camp, and I had like 30 volunteer counselors. And, uh, and every year, as that camp went on, we had about 150, 200 kids that would come. Every year, I didn't have any problem having those counselors re-sign up because the counselors seemed to get more out of it than the kids. And we hear that oftentimes, you know, when young people go off on, on missionary trips. And I think they should think outwardly. They should think, I'm here to serve whoever it is I'm called to serve, minister to whoever I'm called to minister to. But so often they'll come back and go, it was the richest experience in my life. So part of your growth is recognizing that you need to pour. And if you're not pouring, you're not growing. If you're just receiving from this pure river, it just dies with you then you're not being everything that God has called you to be in terms of the own, your own growth as a Christian. So what should our expectations be when it comes to the effect of this? So we're called to be part of what's going on here. There's this river flowing. It flows on us, and we are turned and become part of what's going on. What are the expectations? Verse 2, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I think our greatest expectation should be that that which was divinely closed to the human race due to Adam's sin 
and its subsequent death has now been opened. You know the story of the tree of life in Genesis, right? I mean, Adam and Eve eat, and they are cast out of Eden, and God is guarding Eden with two powerful angels with flaming swords. What we're learning here is that those flaming swords, keeping us from the tree of life, have now been quenched. We have access to the tree of life. That which was lost in that garden was regained in this garden. You know, George talked about Gethsemane. So you've got two major gardens going on, right? The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. In one, everything was lost. and In the other one, everything was gained. I want to take a moment for us to recall Adam's first response to the knowledge of his own sin. What was the very first thing he did when he realized what he had done and what had happened is that he sewed fig leaves together to cover his shame. Let me tell you, mankind has been sowing fig leaves ever since. We just keep sowing fig leaves. But friends, the fig leaves of human effort They may be able to, in some level, cover, and by cover I mean hide, but they can never clothe those who are clothed in Christ have access to life, the tree of life. So have you called upon his name? Are you clothed in Christ? Has God, by his grace, as we see in Joshua chapter 3, taken off your filthy garments and put clean garments on you? Twelve months, we read, of bearing fruit and twelve kinds of fruit tell us this, I think, that this is symbolic of all that gives life, that number twelve, in every conceivable way. There are no limits. It's twelve, twelve, twelve. We read that in Scripture all the time. When God wants to go, look, and I'm going as far out as I can, it's going to be twelve times twelve, earlier in Revelation, times a thousand, 144,000, but then when John turned and looked, it was an innumerable number. So what we're reading in this is that what God has provided in terms of access to the tree of life by being clothed in Christ is going to have an effect upon everything. Feeding upon this tree is the answer to every need of this fallen creation. I don't want to be skeptical, you know, when I read about politicians trying to solve problems and I see a big number, right, 1.3 billion. And I'm like, you know, I have to say, when I see numbers like that, I don't know what that means. It could be 1.3 trillion. I I don't know how that, uh, but it's like, you know, I guess it looks good. There's a picture of you and you're going to put $1.3 billion into the homeless issue or whatever the issue might be. But that's not going to solve the problem. That's not going to heal the nations. We could put as much money in there as we want. It's not going to solve the problem of creation. The healing of the nations. That the Greek word there is therapeus, where we get the word therapy. The therapy that our nations need comes from the leaves of this tree. And we need to get that out there. That's the answer to the dilemma. Now, I, for one, think that this is no fool's errand. I think that 
even though we seem to be in a dip right now in history in terms of the direction of our current culture. People are like, well, how could you possibly think the Bible's teaching things are going to get better? Have you not read the today's newspaper? And I'm like, yeah, today's newspaper is worse than the newspaper 30 years ago, but I think in bigger chunks. I play the long game. But here's, here's my encouragement to you. Don't play this game as if you're going to lose. Well, you, you, you just if, if you want to beat a team, convince them before the game starts that they're going to lose. Oh, I think we have a whole culture of Christians who are like, oh, it's God's will for us to lose in every conceivable way. And I'm like, no, it looks to me like it's God's plan for the healing of the nations. And I know it's hard, right? I mean, I'm not, I was um, coaching a team kids, I forget, I think it was a high school team, a volleyball match. Volleyball is a fun, funny sport. I mean, it's a very much a game of momentum. You can feel the momentum come and go. And, stuff. and I remember we were playing this team, and we were getting beat pretty bad. And uh, I'm like, well, and I'm thinking in the back of my mind, we're going to lose this game. But for me, just so you understand, I have my own definition of winning. I think winning is determined by how much potential is released during competition. I've had games that I, we, I, we've won that I felt like, we, that's not a win. We, our attitudes were bad. We played poorly. We were lazy. And even though we won the, on the scoreboard, I feel like it's a loss. And I've had other times where I'm like, they were good. We played brave. We played hard. We prepared. They ended up better on the scoreboard, but I'm going home with a W. I think that's a win. That's hard to get other people to buy, right? <laughs> when you call timeout and you're losing by a bunch of points, that speech I just gave you might not work for the bunch of 16-year-olds who are like, these guys are crushing us. So here was my strategy. I go, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look like we're winning. Because they're all like sullen and vexed, right? They're all like, we're losing. You know, I'm like, all right, get your shoulders back, look up. I want you to look like you're winning. I want it to look like if somebody walked in the gym and they couldn't see the scoreboard, I wouldn't want them to know by your body language that you're getting beat so badly. Okay? So just fake it, man. Just get your shoulders back, cheer, blah, blah, blah. And they're all like, oh, that sounds fun. I'm like, you know, it was kind of like, all right, just one of those fun moments. And I'm not kidding here. We won that game. And it was weird how that body language affected everybody. All of a sudden, they started believing that they were playing well, simply because they thought, hey, look at you, look at me, we're doing, hey, nice shot, nice this and that. We, we need to quit hunching our shoulders over. We need to pay people to look at us and go, have you not read the newspaper, or why are you so happy? Because I've seen the latter end. My eyes have been open to see where this ends up, and I'm good with it. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, that is, in the city, and his servants shall serve him. No more curse. See, that which was broken in Adam has been fixed in the last Adam, fixed in Christ. I mean, in case you don't know, Genesis teaches that God's just response 
his, 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 his fair response to Adam's failure was this. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And it wasn't just the ground. It was all creation. As a result, can you imagine what it must have been like to be in paradise and then disobey God and then all of a sudden the darkness showed up? It's a nightmare. I don't think any, I don't think Steven Spielberg could make a movie that demonstrates what a horror that would have been for Adam and Eve to experience. You've inflicted the entire creation with a curse. I mean, I, I don't know if I have to go into detail on what is meant by a curse, but it's bad. It's real bad. And let me tell you, we would remain in that cursed estate if Jesus had not become a curse for us. The means by which that curse is removed is not by God ignoring it, pretending it didn't happen. It was by him sending his son to become a curse for us. I realize we live in a more of a pluralistic society. I believe, I, I understand that we're all exposed to many different kinds of religion more than when we were little. But let me tell you, there is no religion in the world that handles that problem. It's almost as if God, in his divine sovereignty, has disallowed all the false religions of the world to really deal with the fact that we are a cursed people. How do you handle that? How do you resolve that problem? How does a just God somehow acquit the guilty? He does it by sending his son to become a curse on our behalf. We read in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And that talking about the tree there is talking about the cross. Well, the very natural and unforced response of those who've been servants of Christ will be then to worship him, which is likely what the end of that verse means. The verse says, um, and his servants shall serve him, but those are two different words. Um, you're, if you have an ESV version, it says, and his servants shall worship him. So sometimes that word serve or service is relating to what we're doing right now. This is a worship service. So what is likely being said there is that those who have served Christ, they will worship him. And they're not going to be forced to. It's not going to be like, get up, it's time to go to church, come on. I was up late last night. Not in the mood to worship. When our eyes are fully open, we will recognize in an unforced way that this is the correct response to what God has done for us. You know, as my children grow older, I really enjoy it when they become mature enough to appreciate beauty. I remember, uh, you know, one of my kids, we were walking down, because I have to say, I really enjoy where I live. And I don't get tired of it. Matter of fact, as I get older, I enjoy it more and more and more. Yes, yeah, so does Luann. <laughs> and who's lived here longer than I've lived here. But I, even last night, I went down, and I'm like, you know, I've had a busy day, and I go down, and I just look at the sand, and I look at the water, and I look at, you know, the Palos Verdes and the Santa Monica Mountains, and I just enjoy it. I mean, it's kind of, 
purging. It's just relaxing. I can feel, you know, my shoulders loosen up. And I, but I really enjoyed it one day when one of my children, I walked down there with one of my children, and they got old enough to go, you know what, Dad, I think I see why you like this place so much. Like when they began to realize, we live in a nice place. Because if you've been there all your life, maybe you don't realize this is a nice place. And if we've been going to church our whole life and we've heard about, you know, God and Jesus and Christianity, we, we might get to this place where we go, well, that's just kind of the way it is. It's just run of the mill, old hat. I come here, I sing my songs, I go home. But let me tell you something. Every part of us that resists the worship of God with a, with a true and genuine exuberance. It's just part of that old man hanging on. Our lack of ability to appreciate and have the requisite gratitude for what has been done for us. You know, I'm, I'm not one who doesn't believe sermons should have an application. I believe that sermons should have an application. If you've been in this church, you know that. <clears throat> but if I've changed one thing over the years, I would say this, and that is that First and foremost, I would argue that the greatest application that we could have in terms of our study of the Word of God is worship. That, that we finish the message and you're just sitting there going, I'm ready to sing a song. Um, I'm ready to engage my Savior in a prayer of gratitude. I, I'm ready to go there. I feel like if we're there, good things have happened. Verse 4, they shall see his face, <clears throat> and his name shall be on their foreheads. Well, here we see the fulfillment of a glorious promise in what people argue would be Jesus' greatest sermon. In the Beatitudes, right? Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Of course, we read in John 4, 24, that God is spirit, so he doesn't really have a face the way we would normally understand a face. Jesus has a face, but God doesn't really have a face in that respect. But the point of a phrase like this is that God will be opened to us and grant us the ability to grasp him in his heavenly glory unfettered by sin. Now we see through a mirror dimly, there we shall see face to face. It is a, what we call a beatific vision, this, this, this vision of God, and it, it surpasses that which was experienced by Moses. Remember, Moses wanted to see God, and he was like, well, get in the cleft of the rock, and I'll show you the back of me. We are not in the cleft of a rock, and God is not just showing us the back of him. He is like face-to-face, quorum Deo, me and you. There's an intimacy there that God has provided for those who've taken of the tree of life. And it is the greatest intimacy a creature can have with his creator. This intimacy is communicated with the expression, his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, I've, I've maybe labored this more than I should, this whole idea of forehead and hand stuff. I'll just say here, whether it's, the name of God or the name of the beast on your forehead or your hand, I don't think it's a tattoo and I don't think it's a subcutaneous computer chip. 
And I don't think it's the return to the park hand stamp at Disneyland, although these days you never know. But it's not just that I think these are wrong ways of reading our Bibles. I think that these very popular and sensational speculations diminish the power and the true beauty of what is expressed. It's as if we're like going looking at our hand and looking at our forehead, and God's going, no, it's way deeper than that. What this means, and I don't have time to go into detail, we've talked about it before, but this idea of His name on you. It's this idea of ownership, intimacy, affection, tenderness, and commitment. At the risk of sounding corny, I don't know about you, I, I get emotional at the weirdest times. And those of you who know me, I know I, I'm Italian, I get kind of emotional, but I'm not really, you, don't, you probably have never seen me cry up here. I'm not one of those pastors who cry very often, you know. But I cry at the dumbest times. I don't know how many times I watched Kirk Gibson hit that home run. But I'm like, you know, just ridiculous. Not just me. Mick Hurtzel's the same way. (laughs) I'm not going down alone. But one of those times was when I was watching Toy Story, and all the toys were having like an identity crisis, right? They're like, who are we? What are we even doing? Remember what they do? They look at the bottom of their shoe, and they see what? The name Andy. Like they, they're like, we're owned by somebody. You know, and Andy in this, obviously in my illustration, Andy is God, but so I don't want to be an idolater. But you get the idea. Is that you're kind of going, no, who am I? I'm owned by God. I belong to him. His name is upon me. Maybe a little less corny would be when you have babies, when you have children, Right? And they bring him into the nursery. And this is going to sound horrible, but I'm like, you know, which one's mine? <laughs> you know what? You know which one is mine? The one that's got my name written on their little wristband. That one's mine. And that is what this, this intimates this, this idea that God is going, look at you are mine. You belong to me. And we will belong to him. Forever. I mean, it, I mean, going back to the child thing, you know, I remember thinking, you know, when my kids were born, I'm like, you, we're going to be together for the rest of my life. Like, we, we, should, we just started a relationship until the Lord brings me home. And, you know, I mean, that's quite a commitment on my part. <laughs> but this intimacy never ends. It's forever. And I think it gets better and better. Finally, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Well, you know, maybe maybe it'll always be daytime in heaven. Perhaps there's no lamps and no sun. But I think that's kind of a wooden understanding of the revelation, and I think it leaves us in shallower water than we otherwise would be. For as we see so often in this book, and those of you who have not followed all along recognize that in 22 chapters, there are over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. So in order to understand the Revelation, you need to kind of understand you know, Genesis through, through Malachi. 
And what we have here is a theme, and that is the theme of light and dark. It's a pretty predominant theme in the Bible. You don't need a lamp. You don't need the sun. God is going to provide all the light necessary. We see it in Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. And I, even this morning as I was reading this, I'm like, wow, this, these two verses say more than I realized. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So you have this, again, this incremental, right? It's, getting, it's bright, brighter, brighter. And what do you think the full day is? I think the full day is the consummation of the eternal state. The full day is heaven. But it's shining brighter and brighter and brighter until you get to that full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Boy, how true is that? Anyways, not to go too far into that, but you've got this light and darkness theme in the scriptures. So I guess my question for you is, how do you know that you're in the light? What, what, what has to happen in order for this to belong to you? For you to be the former in that passage and not the latter. For you to be the one who's getting brighter and brighter and brighter and not the one who is in darkness. You know, Jesus talking about this light and dark theme. You know what he said? The light is coming into the world. You know who he's talking about? Himself. Boy, if Jesus is not who he says he is, I mean, it's been said, C.S. Lewis said he's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He's one of those. I am the light of the world. And then he says, he who believes in me. If you want all the riches associated with the light of heaven, Jesus says, believe. Believe in me. And the unity with Christ is even further conveyed, and I've talked about this elsewhere, so I won't go into it here, in this idea of reigning with him. He had taught in chapter 3, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who stays in the faith. We're called, I mean, remember, that's one of the themes in the Revelation. You've got, you've got theological enemies, and you've got political enemies, and they're going to weigh on you, but you need to persevere in the faith. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would feed upon Christ, that we would avail ourselves of this great river of life, that you, by your infinite love and grace, have poured out upon this fallen creation in order to restore and renew that which was lost in Adam. Help us, Father, to be people who would come to that river and drink. Help us, Father, also to be people who would bring that cup of water to others. Help us, Father, to not be self-centered in our faith, to hoard, as it were, as if we are the final destination for all that is good. Help us to enjoy what it means to be a vehicle for that which is good and right and true. And in all of this, may we ever trust that the great victory is won by Christ and Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen.